This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are joined by Leah Shrump, Director of Pastoral Care at Purdue Christian Campus House, wife and mother of three adult children. Leah's experiences as an elementary teacher, pastor, and adoptive mother led her to become curious about trauma and eventually compelled her to pursue certificates in narrative-focused trauma care, also called story work, through the Allender Center. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. And if you want to add anything to that introduction about family, hobbies, whatever else you might want to say that would give the listeners a picture of who you are, you're welcome to to say whatever you'd like. Sure. Uh, my husband Rob and I are located in West Lafayette, Indiana, near the campus of Purdue University, where we've served for more than 32 years in college ministry. And oh, um, that's a long time. 32 years. <laughs> we're old. <laughs> Uh, our ministry is now shifting from being predominantly college ministry to more of a fuller expression of intergenerational church. So we're in a time of a transition. Um, it's been really good, though. Um, for a while now, Rob and I have had a dream of opening a space where we might offer retreats or intensives for pastors or individuals, couples who are in need of care. Um, nothing solid on the horizon, but we are praying and, and just discerning about what God might have for us in the future there. In our leisure time, we love to travel and experience new cultures. We love to ride bikes with our Maltese (laughs) and hike in beautiful places. And we find ourselves particularly drawn these days to the mountains and most recently the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, if you want mountains, you got to come out where I live. (laughs) It is beautiful. I got to meet Leah. Um, for the first time, I, Impact Campus Ministries, we're a part of a larger association called the Association of College Ministries, ACM. And we do these annual get-togethers, retreats, conferences. One of those is a, co- a summer conference we call the E4. And um, I, I showed up at one of those a few years ago. And at the main session, they had Rob and Leah as uh guests that were going to be talking to us. And I was immediately like, oh, goodness, Purdue Christian Campus House is like the thing of legends where I'm from. So I was so <laughs> excited to meet to meet them. But then they got up and they both of them, but especially Leah was just sharing about, I mean, the whole theme of that year was Generation Z, what we need to think about, how we're going to minister to them. And um and and I think there was even some discussion that had already been had, maybe more analytical, looking at generations. Um, but then Rob and Leah got up, and what they were sharing was just so compassionate. It was so pastoral. Um, and Leah told me later she couldn't even remember what she had even said, but she was just dropping these bombs. And I was just <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. Um, and then I got to go to a workshop later that day and hear from them some more um, and just loved that. But. Um, can you talk a little bit, just just maybe a little bit more, Leah, about your time at Purdue, your heart for campus ministry? I know that it's kind of growing and expanding, but 32 years is a long time. Just give me like uh, a summary or the highlights of campus ministry at Purdue. I mean, God's really, really worked in your guys' ministry there in some pretty cool ways. What, is that, what has that been like? Yeah, he has. I mean, in some ways, I feel like I've grown up in college ministry. I um, started off there as a student and met Rob and um, we were married and then, you know, I was a a pastor's wife and then eventually came on staff. And so, you know, to say, um, well, that's that's been the primary place of my formation. So um, God has done a lot of things. I mean, we've seen a lot of students in and out over the years and um, what a unique context to meet students in as they're emerging as adults, and they're asking important questions and to come alongside and offer pastoral care and and discipleship. Um, but then to have to say goodbye, <laughs> you know, every every three to four years. Um, and so, um, you know, God, he, he just continued to draw us, I think, over the years more to himself. I think that's just been part of our personal journey. I could say a lot of things. Uh, I, I think what what I feel most excited about is um, the way he's drawing us in this in this particular season to become a fuller expression. That we have an opportunity to have um, other adults alongside and and create more of a context of family on mission, more of an intergenerational space where 
you know, the older people can benefit from the youth and 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 vice versa. Um, the college students can be grafted into a, more of a family. And um, so, um, yeah, just a lot of excitement on that front. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I kind of, uh, I mean, that was a big part of what I heard that day uh, when I got to meet you from the from the back of the room as a listener. Um, Leah, you, you talked that day about things like trauma, and this landed in my life. It wasn't the first time I had heard the concept of trauma, but I was in this first initial wave of like trauma-informed ministry that that was starting to become a word I was hearing more and more and being like, oh, goodness, we need to figure this out. And I, I was starting to learn things. And so you were kind of on the front end of that wave uh, for me, considering things, thinking about things. Um, you talked about just ways that we can even unknowingly, with the best of intentions, uh, we can engage in in spiritual abuse. And uh, those comments came from a place of personal learning and conviction. You shared that. You could you could tell that. You can tell when somebody has just learned something, like if I were to talk about trauma and the things I've learned, would come from a different place than from people that had different reasons to care about those things. And that came out of what uh, what you did. We did a mini series in season six for the listeners that have been with us through season six. We did a, like a four episode mini series on spiritual abuse. I think Brent will link maybe the first episode to that in the show notes. Um, but we were doing that series and I reached out to Leah to see if, if she would be able to chat and we could interview her back then. Uh, and circumstances didn't allow that to happen, but you were able to recommend Leah some resources that we shared in that series. Uh, they were great. We got lots of good feedback from lots of people about that. Um, one of the ones that you recommended was the Allender Center, which you've had experience with then and then since then. Uh, and that was in your introduction. But can you talk about your time with the Allender Center, um, what you were able to learn, what you appreciate about what they're doing? Just talk to us a little bit about that resource. Yeah, I love to talk about the Allender Center. Um, it's an organization that's housed within the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Um, and like the Seattle School itself, was co-founded by Dr. Dan Allender, who is a Jesus follower, therapist, and expert on the subject of trauma and abuse. He's also a teacher and a writer. Um, and it was founded on the belief that story is the heartbeat of God, and subsequently that stepping into significant stories in our own lives will open up a desire to better know and reveal the story that God is telling. And also the belief that true healing and restoration occur when we courageously step into our own stories of harm and do so in the context of attuning listeners and wise guides. So the Allender Center offers uh, workshops, intensives, online self-paced courses, free podcasts, and trainings designed to help participants engage their own stories and also learn to engage others' stories well so that we might partner with God to bring the goodness that we're meant to um, to our context, our marriages, our families, our neighborhoods, organizations, businesses, churches. So when you and I met at the E4 conference back in 2021, I believe it was, I had recently participated in what's called a virtual story workshop through the Allender Center. And that was an experience that most certainly shaped what I brought to the panel discussion that day. Hmm. Um, hmm. It was then out of that virtual story workshop that I discerned that I would take the next step in applying for level one of the certificate training program in narrative-focused trauma care, or what we call story work. So at this point, I'm in my last three months of level three training, which is the final year, set to wrap up in April. And uh, yeah, I just feel really profoundly grateful for and changed by the experience. Uh, I think one of the many things I appreciate about the Allender Center trainings is that we're not just equipped with skills to engage stories of harm and abuse, but we're consistently invited into kindness and curiosities on our own stories for the sake of transformation, um, for the sake of love. So tell me about this phrase story work, which was also part of your introduction, but was a was an also called from a much larger, more clinical sounding thing. Like what how would you describe story work? What is what is it like to to go through that process with someone or to work in that field? Or or even the essence of why does it work? Like what's the thing behind it that's so I'm intrigued by this. I love schools of theology and all the counselors I've had and what they're bringing to the table. But this is one I'm unfamiliar with. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be succinct because I, I feel like there are so many things that I could share with you. But um, 
the idea, and and Dan talks about this, you know, is that um, we were all made for Eden, but that's not where we live. <laughs> we have all experienced harm, and we have all been perpetrators of harm. Um, and there is something about the particularity of the harm that we experience that shapes us. It shapes the way we um, experience relationships. It, 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 it shapes the way we show up in the world. It shapes the way we relate to one another. Uh, it shapes what we believe about God and ourselves and other people. Um, and it impacts the way our bodies show up and what we feel in our bodies in certain contexts and certain experiences. Um, there's something about um, experiencing harm uh, or trauma without without the care that we need that that leads to fragmentation. You know, we get flooded and and our brain, in a sense, you know, in a in a in a simplified way, kind of goes offline, and and parts of our brain don't don't connect and um, aren't interconnected in the way that they're meant to be, and in the way that we the way that memories become interconnected when we're regulated, right? So um, story work at its at its simplest is um, really just looking at particular stories from our lives um, and and looking at them with particularity where we, you know, in our work, we write we write stories, uh, childhood stories of harm from ages four to 18. And, and the reason we do that is not because adult trauma is not important. It's just that we're shaped, you know, in our childhood. And so anything that we experience in our adulthood sort of stands on the shoulders or is built on the foundation of what we've experienced previously. And so we look at childhood stories of harm. We write those in first person. I like to write them in present tense even. Um, and then we engage those with someone or or a group of people who are attuned to us, who are paying attention, who are um, reading our face, reading our body, asking questions, being curious to help us come into truth about this story. Um, and really to help us link up parts of our brain that are otherwise not linked because of what we've experienced. So um, the idea is that we we want to look at, you know, this, this, the gospel story that God has written, but also the story that he's writing in each of us. And God is not the author of sin. He's never the author of sin. Um, but he, in his goodness and in his redemption, doesn't waste anything and so there there whatever we've experienced even in terms of harm i think we can we can step into um in the hope that our our good god will meet us in those places and that he can bring life out of places of death mm. so it's a it's um it's not work for the faint of heart to engage your story um right to be willing to go back and sort of experience um in a in a visceral way um, you know what what you have experienced, but but when you have people who can contain that yeah. and people who can hold you with that, and and who can attune to you and ask good questions, and um, who are with you and for you and against anything that has set itself up against mm -hmm. you, you know, against evil, then I I think that it does really open up a context for for healing and for integration and for being able to. Um, name what's been true so that we can partner more intentionally with the Holy Spirit, I think, in what he has for us. Mm. Yeah, I was just letting some of that stuff just kind of sit and sink in on some level, even your opening phrase um, of we, we've all been harmed, we have all caused harm on some level, being a reality of our stories. Yes. Uh, I was thinking about some of my most shaping moments with my therapists and counselors and many of them that I can remember that stick in my consciousness um, would be moments of being in a particular story or that, you know, that ex and, and having somebody help me see that, unpack that, affirm things, allow me to step back. Like it really, those were really the moments that have been, most shaping. So I, I love that concept and I love pulling that out of the work of, of counseling and therapy and being able to say, this is, this is a thing and this is healing and, and has ability to be redemptive and reparative in ways that are unique. I love that. Yeah. Sharing that. Yeah. I, I went back and got my old journal out 
from from our time together um because it was two and a half years ago 2021 so i had to get it out and and see what kind of notes i had and man my handwriting was horrible that day i sat there on one of those notes i bet i spent eight minutes trying to figure out what does that say and i finally remembered but um you had one phrase that we used back in our minis- in our season 6 mini series um you talked about using people we minister to as commodities and that phrase was so th- uh, thunderous in the context of which you said it cuz i just that is exactly what we do in the church uh, not all the time but golly are we so quick to we're growing our program we're expanding our our reach where and people are just they're either volunteers or they're just numbers and baptisms or they're giving units but they're commodities and you particularly said when we do that i i I don't have it in my notes, but my memory says you said that's spiritual abuse. And I just went, boom, like that was so well stated. You you also you spoke of, um, yeah, just when we treat human as when we treat human beings as anything less than that human beings, um, that, that's just inherently what it's it, it's 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 uh, it's. It's not recognizing them for, can you speak to that? Because I'm having a hard time obviously doing that. But can you speak to this idea of seeing people as people, not as anything less than that? Creatures, giving units, like talk to us about that. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, I I think now that I'm a little further into training, I, I might be a little more judicious with the use of the word abuse. Um, <laughs> sure. I would say. I figured you might open with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think. I, I appreciate the the right as a disciple uh, that we reserve, the, you know, as disciples that we reserve to reframe yes. right, as we learn and as as new things are revealed to us. But I would say at this stage of my formation, I would I would say that I believe that it's at the very least harmful, um, but it could include abuse. Um, yeah. So, you know, this is, again, something that we learn, uh, something Dan has taught us at the Allender Center. But you know, we we think about that all of humanity is created in the image of God, right? And out of the love of God. And Dan says they're created for, we're all created for delight and honor. Mm-hmm. And where there is a failure of delight and honor, there is the setup for some level of harm, right? Whether that's mm-hmm. violence, or abandonment, or consumption, or commodification. The sense that someone else exists to serve us or take care of us in some way. That violates love. And certainly we know that the church is meant to be, you know, they're supposed to be for shalom and thriving this interdependence, right? So it's not that we never need anything (laughs) and that we are, you know, that it's unholy to receive. Jesus received all the time. Um, But there's, when we do this in a way that commodifies or requires someone to take care of us in a way that violates love, that's, that's where the problem comes. And so to offer more context, I think, for that comment at that particular session of the conference, a few of us were asked to serve on the panel and uh, to talk about Generation Z and to enlighten others in the room on the markers of that demographic and what makes them tick. And I am not an expert on Generation Z, right? And I, just because I've been in campus ministry for a long time, um, I really, I, I'm no more an expert on Gen Z than the next guy or girl. And so I didn't really have any understanding about why I was being asked to serve on this panel. Um, And I found myself Googling Gen Z to try to learn some lingo that I could regurgitate, right? (laughs) As I was battling some kind of serious imposter syndrome, and I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. Anybody can read a Wikipedia article. Um, And so when I got quiet and listened to what was stirring in me, I noticed that I had some questions and cautions that were rising up. Mm. And that I, you know, tried to offer, I think, that day as guardrails for the conversation itself that were meant to help set a frame of delight and honor. Um, so, why, you know, why did we want to know and better understand Gen Zers? How were we going to have the conversation about them when they're not present? Um, what did we want to do with what we learned? You know, were we seeking to understand so we could help nurture and equip and empower them as the next generation of disciples and leaders? Were we interested in noticing the unique ways maybe that this generation images God and how they might have things to teach us about his nature and his kingdom, or were we entering with a different posture? You know? and, and I know that that panel discussion was hosted for fellow pastors and ministry leaders in college ministries and men and women 
who by and large love Jesus and care about college students and they're not in it for the money. Right? They're, they're doing the good and beautiful and often hard work of ministering to emerging adults, um, but often doing so without a team or without a lot of mutual community or care for themselves or sometimes even resources or pay. And that can be lonely, isolating work and really costly. And I, I think just in these places where we are experiencing our own kind of scarcity, we have to be especially aware of how our care for others can shift into requiring them to take care of us in some way. Sure. We're all made for But wherever we lack that, we're going to be tempted to consume. Sure. Well, and how many of us in the room, like I I love so many of the things, like just the last two minutes, everybody ought to rewind and put that on half speed and listen to that really slowly. There's just so many like fantastic nuggets in what you just shared, Leah. But um, yes, it was a room full of pastors that have, But like you said, we've all endured our own kind of trauma. And oftentimes the trauma that we've endured is in these same ministry spaces in our ministry training. And what I love, and I love your comment about how you'd probably be a little bit more judicious with the word abuse. And yet that day, um, I won't won't hearken like it was led by the Holy Spirit, but I do like it very well could have been because I think we hear those things. I think we say those things. I think we kind of pass them off easily so we can get on to the real work of like, how do we take ground for the kingdom of God? And you saying it with that acute um, abruptness, directness was what broke through all that. And for me, and I know others at my table and other tables, we went, oh, snap. This isn't just like, hey, remember this while you go. Like, don't treat people poorly. It was like, this is a problem. And she just named something that we were all like, ah, what is it that's lingering here in the hallways? Not of the ACM, just in the hallways of work that we do. Ministry, church, Jesus, spiritual formation. We've built these systems and we've built these efforts of discipleship with the best of intentions. And and filled with the Spirit of God, and yet there's something lingering in the hallways of like, okay, but really this is about my insecurities, and nobody's ever taught me to be aware of that. Like, how are my insecurities as a pastor? And like, because it's, it's this weird sickness where I, I got to build this thing that makes me somebody. That's what makes me treat people. And that's not because I see people as less. It's because I'm so worked up with my own fear and insecurity that if I'm not blank, I'm not good enough. And, and the collateral damage is people, people. And I, that's what, for me, when you said that, I was like, ah, that is the right word. And dang. Um, although we, we, we may be more judicious with, (laughs) but I really, really appreciate it that day so much, but yeah, thanks. Yeah. I, um, I mean, there's so much to say in this category. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think I think what was coming up for me was just that, yeah, um, my concern was maybe that some of us in the room might be managing a level of frustration or shame for how Gen Ugh. Z were, weren't responding to our ministry programming. <laughs> you know, maybe the things that used to, quote unquote, work with past generations uh, aren't working now. And so maybe we're looking for a way to discharge that shame in some form of blame or contempt for this generation, right? Maybe we're, maybe we're looking to offload that. Or maybe we're seeking to read them to get in their heads in some way so that we can have better attendance or more success in our ministries and we can feel better about ourselves as pastors or maybe write more encouraging newsletters to our supporters or maintain or increase our funding. You know, which are some of those things are good things, but um, yeah, how how are we what are we doing with with what we're learning? Yeah. You want to say there's no way, Leah, but then you're like, there's no way that's not a part of the conversation. It might not be the whole conversation, but there's no way that that is. It's just so, so well said and so aware. Um, it was a gift to have that. I feel and have felt that tension myself. Oh, just, goodness, you know, yes. That, I mean, it's just so, I, I would love, love to say that I'm above it, but um, in my humanity, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely not above it. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll come get you next week. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you're done with this interview and you're trying to build something next week, it'll come right after you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Brent, what do you got? So I, I think of the idea of Gen Z or any, any generation, I think there's a lot of focus on things like language, 
where it's like, oh, if I just have a dictionary of all these crazy terms they're using, then I'll be able to reach them. Or, you know, there's, you know, a lot of hand wringing about technology. It's like, oh, these, these kids are all married to this technology. It's like, well, you know, we developed it and, <laughs> and saw it come into the world and then we put it in their lives and that's all they've known growing up. So like, what did we expect them to do? Like that is, as far as they understand, that's what life is about. And I, I think, you know, that's, that probably misses the boat too. So like, what is, what is the thing, but those are the easy ones to focus on because we see those technologies come into play. We see kids growing up with them, but I it, like, is there something more underlying that even applies to all the previous generations as well? And we've just never considered it for ourselves or what is, what is the thing that we should really be focusing on to reach a different generation than ourselves? Oh, gosh. I don't have a lot to add to a conversation on, you know, markers of generations or well, even. Yeah. And I don't even mean those markers I, because I think those markers, it's easy to write an article like, oh, this generation, you know, when they grew up, they had these TV shows and this generation has these TV shows and see how much worse these shows are. And it's like, OK, yeah. but it but that doesn't really get to the reason like those shows, like why are those shows popular or what? Like, what did they grow up with that led to those stories being told? Because a lot of times these these shows and the movies and whatever, the music, like there's stories behind those things. But I wonder if the, if it's really all just the same story, the same underlying problems. Def- different bell bottoms this year or this yeah, decade. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and with different lingo. Well, let me let me tag this with a question I have later, because I think it goes with something I had for you later. At one point, um, Leah, earlier, you said um, uh, at that conference, you said we are all and your point, I think, was universal just because we're human beings. And I think I've heard either those quotes from Mother Teresa or something. I've heard somebody quote this, but we are all born to see our face and the fa- reflected in the face of another. Like you were talking about this universal human experience that I feel like Brent's talking about. Where sometimes we get hung up on how they're using a smartphone and how they interact with technology when being human, like there are certain, there's a certain essence to what it means to be human and to minister to people in the name of Jesus and the gospel that is transcendent of whatever technologies or whenever we have lived um, centuries prior. Um, I thought you spoke to that really well when it came to when it came to that. Yeah, I, I think I was probably paraphrasing a quote from Dr. Kurt Thompson, oh, okay. who works in the neuroscience and trauma and therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I've seen that name a few times, yes. Um, he's written a book called The Anatomy of the Soul yes, and another called that's right. Thing, yep. And he has a podcast called Being Known. Yes. Uh, as a Jesus follower. And what he says is we're all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. Ugh, that's even better. Ugh. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. Mm. Uh, and I think that is universal over all of the generations since the beginning of time. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, from the moment we're born, we're, we're searching for the face of our mother. We're searching for someone's gaze to be directed back at us. You know, we're designed actually to need attunement, to need connection and our very brain development depends on it. Um, 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 emotional regulation depends on it, right? Like we, we, (laughs) we need it. Um, and so, yeah, I think, that's something that's true of every generation. And I think anytime you look at a generation, Brent, you you were alluding to this. Um, anytime we look at a generation, we're looking at, um, in a sense, like a, an artificial beginning, right? Like that that generation was birthed out of a generation before it, which was birthed out of a generation before it. And and all of those stories and, and all of those experiences have shaped the next and so, I, yeah, I think that was some of the caution that I felt that day, Brent, was, you know, we can look at this generation and, and maybe we feel frustrated by them or maybe we don't understand their differences or maybe we, you know, um, are just sh- scratching our heads because they seem to be um, more fragile than our generation. I heard someone say that recently, you know, and it's like mm. we, we want to sort of throw rocks from a distance. And um, and yet I think for those of us who are parents and those of us who are pastors and those of us who are a generation or two or three ahead, we we have to stop and say, like, what has my what's been my responsibility to lead and love? How have I contributed? How have how has my generation and how have I personally shaped uh, this generation? 
Um, and I think that this is going to be another plug for story work, but I, I think there's something about entering into our own stories where we um, experience the, um, the compassion of God, right? And the comfort of God in all of our afflictions that then begins to open us and open our capacity um, for compassion for others, right? And so in some ways, it's hard for me to look at someone else with co- compassion if what they're struggling with is something that I've shamed myself about, right? It's something that I'm sort of maybe in a denial or shame management about. But if I if if I've stepped into my own weakness and my own fragility, and I have encountered something of kindness there, I've, I've encountered something of comfort there, then I think that shifts the way I look upon that same fragility in someone else or that that struggle or someone else's pain, right? And so um, suddenly now I'm in a, in a different position. I have more capacity to comfort others with the comfort that I've been given. And so I hope that that the work of looking at our own stories isn't just navel gazing, right? But it, it's designed to agree with what, to agree with God about what's been harmful and about what's beautiful and about what is true so that we can then partner with him in the redemptive work um, of, of, of loving others, of, um, you know, loving mercy and doing justice and walking humbly. Yeah. I think that's our task. Yeah. The, to agree with God on what is harmful and what is good and beautiful and to have that self-awareness because it's hard to extend it to others if we, yeah, I just love all that. Sorry, I'm just repeating stuff out loud so I can let it sink into my own conscience. Can you give me that quote from Thompson one more time? I can, yeah. He's, uh, and I don't know if this is a direct quote, but it's it's something in this realm. He says, we're all born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. Looking for someone, looking for us. Goodness. Yeah. Goodness. And out of that, you know, as as Allender says, you know, out of that, when we experience harm, yet we still have this drive. We're still looking for someone to be looking for us. Yeah. And yet, because because we've experienced harm, then that shapes the way we the way we show up in our signature style to bring people close and to also um, keep them at bay, right? To the push and pull of of how we we draw people close and then say that's that's close enough. Yeah. Well, you know, back off. <laughs> yeah, and that that serves probably as a great segue. And maybe this question is rendered like, "Well, no, duh, she just said it, Marty." But I, I, I think of, I mean, you you mentioned this um, a moment ago, referring to Brent's question um, and his thoughts at the conference. You said this generation is living in the context that we set up for them. Yeah, like that they, they were simply born into a world that we 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 created. So it's not their making. It's our making that now we part of our stewardship is helping them figure out how to steward the world that we gifted them. That's not all bad. That world that we built and created isn't an all bad world. Um, it has some beautiful things too, but it's certainly a world that they that they didn't that they didn't create. It was a context that was created for them. And part of what I loved about that day and what I what I love about you now and today in this interview, the language you use is so um um it's it's a posture that's reparative restorative it's it's not um it's not super analytical it's not um it's not like uh cold unbiased it's not critical it's it's hospitable it's empathetic it's compassionate um and i think really you just spoke to this but maybe help us tie up the loose ends here um as we start to come to a close of why why is that kind of language which is probably preceded by a kind of perspective that you spoke to but like the language we use the words we choose matter um if, if this is about people's stories if this is about story work if this is about the fact that we've all experienced like there's a solidarity with all of us that we've all experienced harm we've all caused harm and understanding those things and being able to become self-aware why is compassionate empathetic language, restorative language, um, more helpful than cold, analytical, critical thinking? Like what 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 takes place there that's so important? Well, I, I think the response that comes up in me is because it looks like Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it looks like Jesus. Um, 
you know, when when we start off our training, Dan tells the story of Hagar, Hagar, mm-hmm. and Genesis fifteen and sixteen, and um, what she has lived, uh, and what she's lived at the hands of the matriarch and the patriarch of our faith, actually. Yes. In in her despair, uh, flees into the wilderness. Um, an expectant mother, um, who apparently has you know just doesn't have any hope. She she goes into the wilderness to die, and and it's a it's an angel of the Lord that meets her there and says, "Where have you come from, and where are you going?" Mm. And so there's there's a kind attuning presence that is curious. That says, tell me about your story. Tell me what you've lived and, and, and where you're going from here, right? And, and I think you could look at Jesus in, in John 4, the woman at the well. Um, you know, that's such an intentional stop on his journey, right, to meet the woman in, in the place of deep shame um, and to receive a drink from her and to, in a sense, begin to engage her in dialogue uh, and you see some of her dis- defensive structures come up, right? She doesn't really, she wants to talk about where we worship. She doesn't really want to, she doesn't, she's there to avoid her shame. That's why she's at the well in that moment, right? Sure. Um, and, and there's something about the way Jesus um, engages her with kindness. Um, he's not there to talk about theology. He's there because he wants to meet her in her story, in the place where she's bound, in the place where she's been harmed, and he wants her to know that there is life for her. And so, yeah, I just, I think that we're meant to show up with compassion and kindness, because I think that's how God shows up with, for us. I just think yeah. that's his posture toward us. So I'm I'm grateful that that's what you hear from me. And I will say that you know, there are places where just in my own way, in my own shame management, I can go to I can go to judgmentalism and I can go to dogmatism and I can go to inflexibility. And, um, you know, that kind of containment has sometimes helped me feel safe. <laughs> and that's even some of some of my own work and some of my own repentance processes is learning how to move maybe in some ways out of my head and out of my shame management and into more of an embodied um compassion that looks a little more smells a little more hopefully like jesus as the years go by yeah totally uh i was thinking about just all the different stories i could think of i mean jesus is obviously we would expect him to be theologically the master class the master example um of what this looks like in his interactions i'm my memorization work this week has me uh in the story of the calling of matthew and it just struck me like Jesus has this uh, uh, total recognition of who Matthew is, where he's come from. The Pharisees and the Torah teachers, they have this reaction, and Jesus is protective about a group of people that have probably endured an awful lot of what we probably would call trauma. Um, But he also doesn't, like, go on the vicious attack. He's very direct with these Pharisees and Torah teachers about what he's here to do. Um, about what this is going to look like, but it's also not, it also allows, and I just think about all these other stories where he's direct, but he allows like, there's this invitational. And if you are willing to like drop the charade and join the party, there's plenty of seats for you too. Um, He's not going to like compromise the safety of this new crew. That's throwing a party in his honor at Matthew's house. Um, He's going to be very direct to to handle that appropriately. He's just the master example of, nope, we're not going to do that. This is why I'm here. This is who these people are with just enough like, and if you'll drop some of your self-righteousness, if you'll examine, he doesn't say this in his words, but there's enough space. I was just thinking of what you were saying. Jesus is this perfect example. Um, and then I was thinking of a Brian Zond quote. Um, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. And I was just thinking, of course, whenever we, whatever we see in Jesus, we're going to see in the God character throughout the story from Genesis to Revelation 
And yes, I, I just was nonstop character after character interacting with God. And I love the framework of story. I love that you would, you would frame the angels interaction that way. Who are you? What are you doing here? Where have you been? Where are you going? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the list of names in the Bible just keep going, but I'll stop Brent. Cause I'll do that for 30 minutes. Go ahead, Leah. What'd you say? Oh, I was going to say, we see it in the garden too. Yeah. Yes. Where are you? Right. Yep. Where are you? And the invitation to name in truth with God um, and to meet him face to face and to walk with him. Oh, and then we see it in the garden at the resurrection. Man, we could do this all day. Like it's, it's so, <laughs> it's so prevalent how, how it shows up like that. I love that. I love that perspective. So I have this thing in the back of my mind that has always told me like, oh, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who can like counsel somebody through something or whatever. But like, I've heard you talk about like, it's just like, if we're just looking for somebody who's looking for us, like that means our role is to look for other people and to see them. Yeah. And it can be that simple, right? Is that like, sometimes people need more than that, but like, that's our that's our job fundamentally, right? Is to see people. Yeah. I think there, you know, we talk about the priesthood of all believers, right? There's a sense in which yes. we're all meant to show up. <laughs> and uh, while I think there is a, a place for trained, licensed therapists, of course, there's also um, a lot of room for us, just as Jesus followers, to show up and pay attention. And um, to be paying attention to what God is doing in our own stories, but to be looking um, at others in a way that is paying attention, um, so that we can embody something of his presence. Right. And, and I think we can, we can learn to be kind and curious, even if we're not experts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can, we can, um, we can step in to our own work, even in ways that help us, um, to become transformed where we can be kind when we might not, maybe we're not able to be kind today, but maybe, <laughs> As we partner with the spirit, you know, maybe in, in certain places, we, we will have more kindness yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, there are certain things that we certainly can't do, but there's an awful lot that we can. Um, I have a great family friend who's a professional therapist and has been for probably almost 40 years. And she will often say, there are some things that I specifically am trained for, but 80% of what I do, if they were just good Jesus-centered friends people who were just good friends who loved their neighbors, their friend, even just their friends, not even neighbors. They don't know just the friendly neighbors they know and loved them. Well, like Jesus invites us to on a basic level, uh, I wouldn't have to do what I do. And I thought Brent's question was really spot on for that. Yeah. I think I don't remember who said this, um, but someone wiser than I has said that most people can't tell the difference between being listened to and being loved. Ooh. And I think there's a there is a sense in which we can learn to hold space and listen. Um, and as Jesus followers, we have the Spirit of God in us, and we can pray. Yeah. Um, and we can seek to join God where He's already at work. Yeah. So, what are some resources um, that you could share? Maybe maybe stuff more recent that you've learned since the last time Marty saw you speak things that you found helpful, anything that you've created, like what are some things that people can use if they want to dig in further? We've already, we've already mentioned a couple of things, the Allender Center. Um, you know, you, we got a book and a podcast recommendation there as well, but anything else that you would find helpful uh, to, to point people in a direction for some resources? Yeah. Well, um, I would say, I think you've maybe referenced adamyoungcounseling.com and the place we find ourselves podcast. We've mentioned Dr. Kurt Thompson and Being Known podcasts. Um, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel Vanderkolk. Van um, and that's a good one just about trauma in general, if you're interested in learning about the effects of trauma. Um, there's one called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menikim about racial trauma. Um, those are good resources. Also, Rob and I had an opportunity to share some time in a marriage story intensive last fall with Dr. Stephen Lisa Call and Dan Allender and his wife Becky at the Reconnect Institute in Washington. And um, they have a podcast that includes a lot of this story work in the context of enriching our marriages and, and cultivating connection in our marriages. And so 
the Reconnect Marriage podcast is is another resource that I would recommend. Awesome. As well as any of their intensives and conferences. I mean, that was just a really rich time for us. We were blown away. Well, we know our listeners like podcasts and they get caught up to real time. They're like, what do I do now? So you just gave them some more things to look at. I like that. Beautiful. Love that. Um, you, you were prepared with resources. It seems like <laughs> I was prepared with the resources. I thought maybe you would ask. I love it. Okay. So where can people find you if they want to get connected, if they have questions about, you know, something you said, or maybe there's a reference that you made that we didn't get into the links, uh, you know, well, how can people get connected to you specifically? Probably the best way to reach me these days is through Campus House and my email, which is leah at campushouse.church, L-E-A at campushouse.church. I'll be completing my certification this April, 2024. I'm trying to discern how and when and to what degree I might broaden into some sort of private practice. And Rob and I are still sort of dreaming about what could be ahead for us, but nothing to offer there yet in terms of a website or, or private practice. Fair enough. Well, if that does ever change, please let me know and I can add it to the show notes for future listeners. <laughs> Thank you. I will. Thank you. Okay. Well, Marty, any other thoughts? No, I just want to thank Leah for being here. Um, uh, just continue for whatever reason. There are just certain voices that for whatever reason resonate or they're on the same spiritual wavelength or whatever that thing is. And just always listening to you share is a gift for me. It, uh, it connects with my brain well and, um, and my heart. I shouldn't probably even say my brain. It probably is connecting to my heart even more. <laughs> and so I just really appreciate that. And for the ways that you stepped out that that day two and a half years ago when you're like why am i on this panel there was a reason you were there it was helpful for so many of us why did we invite you onto this podcast for the same reason and so thanks for being available and and letting jesus use you so thanks for being here thanks so much for having me well you can find all of those show notes and links at bamadestablishup.com everything that we have going on is there you can use the contact page to get in touch with us gives you the best most up-to-date way to find us. So thanks for joining us on the Baymo podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Anyway, so Marty's not going to show up to our call. Did we make preseason Super Bowl predictions? Was that part of our predictions? Did you? I don't know. Trush was telling me that he predicted the Chiefs would beat the Niners in the Super Bowl. He sure did. That's a fact. He's like, well, that was just kind of a popular opinion. No, it was actually preseason. That was like popular a... or not doesn't make it any less right. That's true. Preseason. That was a pretty normal pick. Um, and then as the season went on, everybody jumped off of the Chiefs train because we were struggling and stayed on the Niners train. They had a small uh, three-game stretch where they they were not great. Um, but then, I mean... I dare say the Super Bowl itself played out like the Chiefs' entire season. Boy, you got that right. <laughs> Holy cow. I just... Yeah. It was, it was a very stressful, <laughs> very stressful time. Um, I don't think I felt that stressed in a football game since the Bills divisional round um, a couple of years ago, that famous football game where there were like four lead changes in the last two minutes. Hey, buddy. Oh, my. We've had a change of heart, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there's really only one thing to talk about, but go ahead, Brent. Let, let me start by apologizing to Niners Nation or whatever we call ourselves. I don't know. I got greedy. I wasn't following any, like, the, I saw the game started. I started my little live activity just so I would see. I was surprised to see, you know, whatever into the second quarter, and it was still scoreless. I was like, oh, wow, okay. But I wasn't watching the game. I wasn't really paying attention. And then at some point I see, like, I think it said, like, five minutes left in the fourth quarter. It was within three points or something. I don't know. And then I saw another notification that said it went into overtime. I was like, what? Yeah. My live activity had stopped updating for some reason. So I opened it up and I got greedy. Mm. I started following the game and I, I cared too much. I cared too much and, and the whole thing fell apart. It's my fault. When I don't pay attention, when I don't care about what happens, my teams have success. When I try to be enthusiastic when I try to pay attention, when I try to be a part of what's going on, mm. I'm always disappointed. So it's my fault.
I take the blame. So for you, caring too much means you were actively watching the game. I was following the play-by-play. Wow. I wasn't even watching it. That's caring too much? Okay. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I I, w- I don't wear like an Apple Watch. I knew, though. I knew. We got the field goal, and then, and then Mahomes had the ball, and I just had this sinking feeling. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he did what he does. He sure did. He sure did. I don't wear an Apple Watch or anything. I would be curious to know like what my heart attack risk was like throughout heart attack the risk. game. It was a very I had a very sustained elevated heart rate for hours on end. It was uh it was a stressful watching environment for sure. And when we when we when we were making the fourth quarter drive to go down and tie the game all of us and my family were just pacing around the basement. Uh, it was just the five of us watching in my basement. And I love my small group. We have a small group of like 15 or 16 college kids that come to our house every week. And earlier in the week, Leanne had floated the idea like, do you want to invite the small group over for the Super Bowl? And I said, no, I do not. I will. I, I either want to watch it just us or with people who are very committed to the game and who actually care about watching football. I do not. I My emotional state cannot handle just side conversations about the dip and Usher. So let's get focused on the game. So it was just us. We were pacing around. It was very stressful. Um, Marty, what was the emotional experience of the Super Bowl for you? You know, I really couldn't have cared less. It was great. I just watched two teams play a really uh it was an entertaining football game it was a very entertaining super bowl overtime how many super bowls have you even gone in overtime two ever including this one including this one the last yeah. one was actually the great uh the great patriots comeback against the falcons yep. uh whatever year that was i remember thinking we said this out loud in the gathering i had i was at a group with i don't know 15 ish people watching the game uh, a bunch of middle-aged families and we uh we we made the comment routinely in the first half i can't believe the chiefs are only down by 7 like i can't believe they're only down by 7 mm. we didn't nobody had a hard rooting the fun thing about the room is nobody had a hard like team they were really pulling for it was almost just watching and analyzing cuz we really didn't have a dog in the hunt but everybody was like i can't believe we all kind of knew the chiefs are going to come back because they're not down enough like Give me 20 points, and and this might be a question, but uh, we felt like at seven. With how much with how much time left, though? That's the real question. Like 20 points. Yeah. And... I, I think I still, yeah, I still would have felt a little uneasy, even 20 points at halftime, just knowing. But... The, the last time we played the 49ers in the Super Bowl, we were down 10 with seven minutes to go, and we won by 11. We scored 21 yep. points in the last seven minutes, so... Anything is possible. Um, you know, one of my friends, one of my best friends from Kansas City, uh, Keith, he he's a nervous Nelly, and he was saying he was afraid going into the game and that he doubted whether we could win. And I said, don't ever be afraid of anything ever again, because if there's one thing we learned, like w- when we have when we're down by more than one score and we have less than 13 seconds on the clock, then you can doubt that we can win the game. Otherwise, you just have to stay in it the whole time. Let's talk about what we've learned about what you should doubt. Let's have that conversation, okay? Okay, yeah, well, let's talk about it. So there's one quarterback that's still playing the football game. He's still playing He's still playing football. Um, that would cause you to doubt because your record has been really bad against this quarterback. Like, you have won one of them, that's true, uh-huh. but you've lost all the others. Uh, one of them also a very important game. There's one quarterback, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is this. Uh-huh. There is one quarterback in the NFL that has proven time and again he can beat <laughs> Mahomes and the Chiefs. And mm-hmm. um, and and there's a lot what's, of reasons to what's doubt. What's that quarterback's name, Marty? I mean, he's in retirement currently, but he could come back at any point. Oh, nice. No, it's this is Tom horrible. Brady. This is hor- <laughs> it's, it's Joey Franchise. I did vomit a little bit in my mouth just making reference to the I understand. Guy, but I understand. This has become my favorite all time like spin move of like takes ever is that Marty has somehow found a way to leverage an awful season from Joe Burrow, which he was injured, but that's just a part of I'm not saying he did play awful sometimes, but it was also awful in the sense of what happened to him. Uh, and he had an awful season, and somehow the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl 
which is incredible for so many reasons, but somehow that is really just serving as evidence for really how good Joe Burrow is. There's only one quarterback that you need to fear. And he was he was not playing when you played us. Yeah, well, chances I'm, are good he'll be playing the next time you play us next year. Bring it on, bring it on. I am not afraid of anybody. You should be. I actually I had a, this conversation with a friend today though. I said, who is going to be the next non Mahomes AFC quarterback to win a Super Bowl? And he made a joke about like, are they scouting middle school players right now? Because I don't know who's who's good in the seventh grade right now. Unbelievable. Uh, but then, but then he did admit. Uh, he said he said Joe Burrow will be the next AFC non Mahomes quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Absolutely. How's next year sound? Next year sound good? Upsetting your desires for a three peat? We're in the middle of doing something no team has ever done before. So I think we start doing something next year that no team's ever done before. I think next year is the first of three. Maybe four. Is this a prediction? Are you making Maybe. this prediction? Maybe. <laughs> Come on, oh Marty. Gosh. Make it a prediction. Oh. Well, I mean, we're the, we're least... the fifth betting favorite right now to win the Super Bowl. So I think this is <laughs> as good of Chiefs, a year. We know, we know the storyline. We know the script, Reed. It's yes, in, we do. It's in Louisiana. This is the year Burrow returns to the very stadium where he won the national championship after playing the greatest season in college football that we have ever seen. Uh-huh. Let's brag about college football. And Burrow goes back there and he wins the Super Bowl and it begins it begins this dual dynasty. It will be the greatest 20 years the NFL has ever seen. Mahomes, Burrow, when will it end? Who retires first? Here's what I like. An AFC championship where Mahomes and the Chiefs face off against Joe Burrow and the Bengals and Mahomes throws the game-winning touchdown to number 85, T. Higgins, now wearing red and yellow as a Kansas City Chief. You I think keep I like his that. name out of your dirty Chief-laden mouth. No way. He's gonna, I, 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 think, I think there's a shot that he comes and plays for us. Brent, We've got you a set decent amount up. of cap space. I just want you to know you set up this conversation. This um, is taking a bad turn. It's going to be beautiful. Anyway, so we had a lot of predictions throughout the season, Marty. Um, I don't remember if we said out loud our like preseason Super Bowl predictions about who would win, but I'm sure I know who you would have said, and I'm sure I know who I would have said. So I think one of us ended up being right. I was right. I predicted that the Niners would not win it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's make predictions about who won't win next year. That's that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Reed and I have to go to a Hebrew lesson, but at some point, I think we're going to have to return to this topic in a general sense and we'll see i don't know we'll see we're supposed my heart is so conflicted marty like you taught me about hellenism and i can't feel comfortable engaging in football but i also have this like thing where it's like i always kind of want to like pay attention to it but i just feel gross about it so we're gonna have to talk about it at some point just dive in and bathe in the gross right now you gotta have something you gotta have something nfl is that thing for me uh, I'm totally kidding. For everybody listening, wondering, did he mean that? Like, seriously? No, I did not. <laughs> Do you really love idol worship, Marty? Um, <laughs> it did make me laugh. Like, when they when they zoom in at the beginning of the game, just on this shining, graven image of a football, like this trophy, and it's got laser lights and smoke machines. There's not even a person up there with it. It's just the trophy in all of its glory. And uh, this is our American religion. It's beautiful. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I I so uh, I, this has been fun. I I have to I have to get the final word because our team won the championship, and so go Chiefs, back to back champions. Joe Burrow can only dream of it. Patrick Mahomes, greatest football player in the universe. The universe, it's true. Uh, and he proved it. He's he's no, he has no rivals. Go Chiefs. No no wow okay. There you go. No Last rivals. Word. He has he Last has a word, whole everybody. there's there's a whole group of guys who are below him who are like scrapping with each other to try to be his rival. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that he has none. Mm -hmm. And okay. I'm perfectly happy okay. with that. Have fun. Have fun fighting for second place. Everyone else. There you go. Last word. OK, so, Reed, I forgot to show you and Marty this when we recorded. OK, uh, yesterday. But there there is something fun that I need to show you. 
that uh, a listener, Ordy, sent me. He made a Super Bowl snack stadium. And it includes oh, many great things. Oh, my goodness. And with lights. you may recognize some of these sponsors that he has put into the stadium. Wow. I sure do. Notably, the 49ers logo directly above the Bama logo. I don't know what that means. And actually, also directly below the Bama uh, logo. So well, the Chiefs? Bama is like the chiasm at the center of the 49ers legacy. That is not something we want to be true. But look at the Chiefs <laughs> no, logo is no. right below the Impact Campus Ministries, which is like, you know, uh -huh. the, the quote-unquote yes. parent company of Bama. So sure. we know who is really running the show. Um, <laughs> we also know because the Chiefs were the ones holding up the trophy at the end of the game so that's amazing this is yes. and they, this is so these various compartments that are the stands these are like filled with chips and i assume and i stuff. haven't seen the completed wow version, but and yeah. the lego yeah. goalposts way to go ordy <laughs> i love your enthusiasm yeah and i love it more because my team happened to win the game so i'm even more enthusiastic about <laughs> of it of course but this is uh this is excellent that's fun